we continue our series on the Gospel of Mark, and today we are in chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Well, here in our text, Mark is giving us an account of the calling of the twelve apostles. And this speaks to the very foundations of the church of Jesus Christ. During the time of the Reformation, which was the greatest awakening that has occurred in the post-apostolic era throughout all church history, the Reformation was really, in essence, the unchaining and unleashing of the Word of God. And as the Word of God was unleashed upon Europe and unleashed upon the Western world, the Reformers deemed it necessary to go back to the very foundations and to rethink through all these traditions that had become dogma in the church. The greatest question that Luther himself wrestled with, not only prior to his conversion, but really through his whole life, and really the question that every one of his sermons in one way or another addresses is, how can I find a gracious God? There were other questions that arose, such as, where did the scriptures come from? Who gave us the scriptures? Was it the church or was it God? <laughs> Luther's answer to the question, how can I find a gracious God, was the you know, Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the reformers answer to the question, who gave us the Bible? It was, of course, God. It's the inspired word of God. And all the authority of God is invested in his word. And that authority is intrinsic to the word, not extrinsic from it. It doesn't come from an external institution that is then given to the word or conferred upon the word. But rather, the word by virtue of what it is as the word of the living God bears all the inherent authority of God himself. Well, another question that arose which was of foundational importance was what is the true church what is the true church 
The Nicene Creed back in the 4th century had defined the essential attributes of the one true church as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And by Catholic, it simply meant universal. Now, when the Nicene Creed said that the, the, that the true church is one, there it's speaking of the unity of the church and that there are not two universal churches. There is one universal church and only one. And any institution that does not belong to the one church which Jesus Christ founded is not the true church. The church is also holy. It is called out from the world. It is separated from the course of this world in order to be united in Christ and holy assembly sanctified by the Spirit of God. The church is also Catholic in the sense of universal. It transcends the boundaries of geographic nations, of ethnicities, of languages. It is a global church. And finally, the church is apostolic, one holy Catholic and apostolic. And this is where the reformers really had to do battle in particular. Because the Roman Catholic Church defined the apostolicity of the church, that is, that attribute, attribute whereby it identifies with the apostles, they defined it in terms of an apostolic succession based on those whom Peter laid his hands on, those who succeeded him supposedly, allegedly, as bishops of Rome, and the succession of bishops that came from the imposition of the hands, a quite kind of literal genealogy of apostolic succession. But as Calvin and other reformers pointed out, what happens when a bishop apostatizes? What happens when a bishop teaches contrary to the word of God? Well, you know what happens. And this was one of Luther's favorite texts, Galatians chapter 2. Such a one, just like Peter, when he deviated while he was in the church of Antioch, he was eating with the Gentiles, and then when certain men came, uh, he felt the pressure and he separated himself from the Gentiles to observe Jewish ceremonial table laws in order to save face and reputation, probably out of the motive to... Uh, you know, not utterly scandalize his own testimony when it came to reaching these Judaizers with the gospel. He probably had good intentions, and yet he was not walking in accord with the truth of the gospel, and therefore Paul stood up in the assembly and rebuked him in front of everybody. Peter erred, and Peter, as are all men, was subject to the word of God to the authority and regulating, really, authority of the word of God. And so what happens when a bishop gets out of line? What happens when a bishop deviates from the word of God? That bishop cannot be said to be faithfully representing Jesus Christ as an ambassador and therefore has deviated in such conduct from true biblical apostolicity. Apostolicity defines the true church, and true apostolicity is this. 
The answer to the question, does the church align with the teaching of the apostles in the word of God? Does it align with the canonical scriptures that were inspired by God, that the spirit of God enabled the apostles and their associates to write as the guide for the church? Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And so what it says it's built on the foundation of the, the apostles, what it means is the teaching of the apostles, the doctrine of the apostles, the instruction of the apostles, the kerygma, the proclamation of the apostles. And so here in our text in the Gospel of Mark, this is really where all that had its historical origin. This is where Jesus called his 12 apostles to lay the foundations of the New Testament church. And so consider in the first place that we have here in our text the appointment of the 12. The appointment of the 12. We read in verses 13 and 14, that Jesus went up to a mountain, went up on the mountain, and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Now, it's probably not a coincidence that this scene took place on a mountain. The Greek word specific there, this was a mountain. It's probably what we would consider today something of a big hill. But nonetheless, the gospel writer calls it a mountain. And throughout the history of God's dealings with men, the high points of God's own self-revelation and the epitomes of spiritual experience often took place on mountains. Ezekiel 28 identifies Eden, the garden of God, with the mountain of God. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. Moses and the elders of Israel communed with God on the mountain of Sinai when they were summoned to come face to face with the presence of the ineffable glory, Exodus 24. And that, by the way, took place in the constitution of the nation of Israel as the people of God and now as Christ is constituting his church and is establishing the foundations of his new covenant church. He summons up to the mountain the leaders of the new Israel and initiates them into close, intimate, personal, spiritual relationship with himself. The text says that Jesus called to himself those that he himself wanted. And here called can be probably better translated as summoned. He didn't just call out to them. He summoned them. This is the king in his majesty authoritatively summoning these 12. The choice of the apostles was made by the sovereign determination and purpose of Christ. He's the one that chose them. The ordaining of such ministers by the good pleasure and choice of God, in fact, has its roots in the calling of the sons of Levi 
to minister before the Lord as priests. Deuteronomy 18.5 says, For the Lord your God has chosen him, the tribe of Levi, out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. Levi didn't appoint himself. The sons of Levi didn't appoint themselves. They were selected by God. It was not the prerogative of the priest to appoint himself or even to volunteer himself. He had to be summoned. He had to be ordained by God. Hebrews 5.4 says, And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Similarly, the apostles were not self-appointed. The Lord Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men and knew who would be uh, fitting to fulfill his purposes, he elected them of his own will. And in John 15, 16, he told them quite expressly, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And the fruit of their labors, by the way, has remained to this day, brethren, because we are that fruit. And so is the church around the world. Well, the narrative in the Gospel of Mark is again here stressing the absolute, sovereign, unparalleled, unrivaled authority of Jesus Christ. He has authority over diseases. He has authority over demons. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority over the Sabbath. And now he has authority over his church, over the highest ranking officers of his church. Officers who minister in the church of Christ do not stand by their own name or authority, but in the name and authority of Christ as those who are subject to his word, accountable to his word and to his will and to his commandments. The entire structure of the church, therefore, in alignment with Christ, is one that represents not merely human intuitions or human authority, but divine authority under the headship of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Well, verse 14 says that he appointed 12. But the Greek literally says that he made 12. Poieo in the Greek, he made them. He made them to be what they became because they were not already what they would become as a result of this call. What is implied by this call is not only the authority the authoritative and effectual summons into intimate association with Christ, but the impartation of the divine word to them that would make them to be apostles. With this call came the divine guarantee of fitting them 
with the necessary grace and gifts that would equip them spiritually and morally and ministerial-wise, that would equip them for the apostolic office. Hence, in Ephesians 3, 7, one of the other apostles that was later appended to this number, Paul, said that he became an apostle according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. With the call of Christ came the effective working of his power. Humanly speaking, it wasn't that these 12 were the cream of the crop in Israel. They weren't professional scribes, scholars, prophets, or priests. They were ordinary laborers, fishermen, a tax collector, a political zealot, and so on. They were inadequate in themselves. These men were inexperienced in the ministry. They were ordinary men. But the Lord chose humble men out of humble backgrounds in these humble beginnings to display through them just how triumphant and glorious his grace is. He made this ordinary band of ragtag followers into the pillars of his church and the governors of his kingdom. The calling of the twelve doesn't point to how great these men were, but to how great the ability of the Lord is to make them to be what they became. John Calvin said, quote, The apostleship was not bestowed on account of any human merits, but by the free mercy of God. Persons who were altogether unworthy of it were raised to that high rank, end quote. When institutions in this world call people to serve them, for instance, like a business that hires a person for a task, they choose them ordinarily according to their merits, according to their abilities and their skills, and what they have, the native gifts and abilities and talents and skills that they can bring to contribute to the thing. But the Lord calls his people by grace alone, not by merit, not by our foreseen skills. And it is his grace that makes us fit to fulfill the callings to which he calls us. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And you look out over the twelve, and in fact, none of them seem to be wise or noble or mighty. But he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put, the put, to put to shame the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what the Lord's doing here in the calling of the twelve. He intends to elicit all the glory and all the honor and all the praise for the massive fruit that will eventuate from their labors through the course of church history. Now, the number of the men that he appointed is specific. It's intentional, and it's symbolic. He didn't appoint 11. He didn't appoint 13 or even 7, but 12. 
And when Judas later suicided in his apostasy, Peter said in Acts 1 that it was necessary to appoint another in his place in order to fulfill the number of the twelve. And so what's going on with this number? Well, it's a number that corresponds to the twelve patriarchs from whom the twelve tribes of Israel came. The nation of Israel was founded, as it were, by twelve founding fathers. And now the church would be founded under the Lord by twelve founding fathers. The Lord himself makes this connection between the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles in Luke 22. Because he said to them, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat it and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve thrones, twelve apostles governing the twelve tribes of the eschatological Israel, the people of God. The apostles would be the founders, the fathers, the princes, and governors of the end time and eternal Israel. As Robert Stein noted, one scholar of the Gospel of Mark, he said, the appointing of the twelve was clearly a parabolic act on the part of Jesus. And within the narrative of Mark, this appointment of the twelve follows on the heels of the five seri- the, that series of five clashes that the Lord had with the religious establishment of the Pharisees. It was that false religion of the Pharisees and their scribes that was prevailing among the nation of Israel. And Israel had lapsed into apostasy. They were unfit to fulfill their calling. They were supposed to be a nation of priests that would reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth. Exodus 19.6 But their leaders had instead As the Lord said, they had taken away the key of knowledge, and they did not enter God's kingdom themselves. And those who were trying to enter in were only hindered by them. That's Luke 11, 52. So Jesus calls the twelve to equip them, Matthew 16, 19, with the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that the twelve would spread the true knowledge of God to the world. The apostles would exercise those keys through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And they would open up the door of heaven to all who would respond to the invitation of the gospel message through faith and repentance. And they would close the door of heaven to all those who contradicted their inspired and authoritative doctrine. Thus, the call of the twelve symbolized God's judgment and rejection of Israel and its replacement with a new Israel. The keys are taken away from the scribes and the Pharisees. They're given to the apostles. Matthew 21, 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing 
the fruits of it. The appointment of the twelve also symbolized God's will to bring restoration, redemptive restoration to the eschatological Israel, just as the prophets had foretold. I mean, there's prophecies about this all through the latter prophets, Isaiah to Malachi. Isaiah 11:12 says, God will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And that shouldn't be understood literally or carnally, but rather redemptively, theologically, and spiritually. The 12 tribes of Israel had been dispersed through the exile, through the Assyrian captivity of the northern nation of Israel and through the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so devastating was, was the Lord's judgment on them that the distinctions of the tribes at large had been obliterated. Those tribes cannot be traced to this day. They have so intermarried and intermingled that they cannot. And in the time of Jesus, because of those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah and their companies, well, really, only two and a half tribes remained in the land. There was Benjamin and Judah and the half-tribe of Levi, and the rest were a part of the diaspora. They were scattered among the nations. And so the Lord appointed 12 apostles to communicate his intention to bring full restoration from the exilic curse to his wayward people, to gather the full number of his elect from the ends of the earth into the spiritual Israel and new kingdom that he came to establish. And so that's why he appointed them. But notice in the next place that our text speaks to the mission of the twelve. The mission of the twelve, verses 14 and 15. It says that he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Well, he chose them that they might be with him in the first place. And those words in our text must not be missed. These men were granted the unique privilege of being his holy companions, his comrades, his protégés. The formation of their spiritual character would take place under the direct scrutiny and instruction and supervision and influence of Jesus himself. He would personally oversee their ministerial training for this office to which he called them. They wouldn't attend the rabbinic schools of the day. They wouldn't sit at the feet of some prestigious Gamaliel or other rabbi but they would attend the school of Christ and they would sit at the feet of God in the flesh. Over the next couple of years, they, these men, uniquely 
would gain a holy familiarity with Christ that was uniquely privileged, a privilege never granted to any other of the sons of men. The apostles' intimate, personal, spiritual, and experiential knowledge of Christ was the backbone of their entire ministry. It wasn't their human accolades. It wasn't their personal achievements. It wasn't their education and learning or anything of that sort, but simply that Christ had chosen them and ordained them and would fit them to be capable servants of himself. It was to these men that he would give the fullest glimpses into the glories of his divine character. While Jesus would teach the crowds with many parables and enigmas, he would bring the twelve aside and he would teach them the meaning of all things clearly. He ordained them as his choice servants to be vehicles of special revelation, to be his mouthpieces to the whole church and to the whole world after his departure. The entire fate of the church, humanly speaking, was resting on the shoulders of this band of 12 men. Hence, when the Sanhedrin had forbidden Peter and John in the book of the Acts to preach in the name of Jesus, what was it that buttressed their resolve to not keep silent in the face of their threats? We read in Acts 4, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were with him. They saw and they heard. And then back in verse four, uh, 13 we read, now when they, that is the Sanhedrin, the council, the religious establishment, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's why he chose them, that they would be with him. And that's what even their adversaries realized when they saw that that same kind of divine authority and boldness and power and unction and speaking that was evinced by our Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, when he taught in the synagogue with authority, that that same anointing, that same boldness now rested upon these men. And oh... May the Lord grant to us, brothers and sisters, that we too may be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would know him. That we would have such holy communion and converse with him. That his praises, just like Peter and John, would never be lacking from our lips. That his gospel would be bursting from the overflow of our hearts into our everyday speech and witness. Of course, we can't be with him physically like they were. Not now, not till later. But we can still sit at his feet and soak ourselves in his instruction. 
by immersing ourselves into the Word of God. The words of this holy book are no less the words of Jesus Christ himself and no less the words of Christ than that which he spoke in the presence of the apostles. And it's not just the red letters that are the words of Christ. It's all the letters. It's all inspired by the triune God in Christ. It's all his word. And so, these words in this book bear the same authority, the same sufficiency, the same power and effectiveness to communicate to us the personal transforming knowledge of the Savior as the intimate words that these 12 heard in the privacy of the houses of Galilee. Verse 14 says, Jesus appointed them that he might send them out to preach. That was their mission. First of all, to be with him. Second of all, to be sent out to preach about him. They would be with him as eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of all that he did and spoke. And they were sent to proclaim that firsthand testimony by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 1 Peter 1.12 And that word in our text translated send. In this verse it's the verbal cognate to the noun apostle. Apostle. And that's what apostle means, to be sent, to be commissioned as an ambassador, as a representative bearing a message. And while the whole church is, in a sense, sent out by Christ into the world to testify of the gospel, it was the apostles who were commissioned and sent in the highest, most authoritative sense possible, a fact that made them unique and that caused them to be ranked even above the order of the prophets in the early church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has set in the church first of all apostles, second prophets. Well, in this commission to preach, there was extended to them an anointing from Christ that empowered them to do the works that he did. In Mark's gospel, there is a connection between verse 14 here and chapter 1 verse 39 not to mention other texts but there it says that Jesus was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons that's what he did he was preaching and casting out demons he was preaching and healing and casting out demons the apostles were anointed and commissioned to do the same by the Spirit of Christ who was on them. And they were sent forth, preaching and teaching. And as they went forth, the Spirit would later inspire their message so that what they declared in their official preaching and teaching was the very words of God. Hence 2 Peter 3.12 wherein the apostle charges the church, saying that they would be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. 
He puts the commandments of the apostles on par with the words of the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures. And it was the apostles and their companions who would expand the canonical writings of the prophets in order to include the 27 books of the New Testament. Now when Jesus gave them power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons, the Greek word for power, exousia, is literally authority. Authority. The authority of the Lord Jesus that Mark has so emphasized and exalted is now extended to this company of the twelve. And the proof of that is that they had the ability to do miracles and signs and wonders which served to attest and confirm and validate their message. When Paul was later added to their number, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15.8, as one who was born out of due time, and false teachers were questioning the apostolic credentials of Paul, He reminds the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so it goes without saying that there are no more apostles today. The last one standing was John, who wrote the book of Revelation. There have been many imposters throughout history, many, many imposters. Every single cult that has ever been founded is claimed to restore something that is missing or to add something to the canonical writings of the apostles in some way or shape or form in a manner that undermines the testimony and authority of the books of Scripture. Many imposters. Many people continue to make such bogus claims today to be apostles or to have some kind of unique authority in the church. Large numbers of people in the charismatic movement actually believe that the apostolic office is ongoing and that direct verbal prophetic revelation from God is ongoing throughout the history of the church. But anyone that claims to be an apostle, let's just be clear, is a false apostle. They're a false apostle. Revelation 2.2, Jesus commends the church of Ephesus saying, You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Oh, brethren, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. And it's only by knowing true doctrine and the true teaching of the apostles in Scripture that we can expose and identify false doctrine and have the discernment to avoid it so that we may avoid the destruction of our souls. An apostle had to be an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately an eyewitness to his bodily resurrection from the dead. That's why in the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul didn't just see a vision of Jesus. He saw the risen bodily Lord Jesus himself. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. 
Paul states emphatically in 1 Corinthians 15.8 that he was the last one who saw the risen Christ. He was the last one who was born out of due time. And so there's no more ongoing revelation like that which the apostles received and spoke. And now that we have their teachings in the scriptures, these scriptures are sufficient for the church. All true teaching and all true theology will align with the words of the apostles and their companions in the scriptures. Anything that contradicts them is flat out wrong. That's why the Apostle John could say so authoritatively in 1 John 4, 6. Now listen to this and imagine if any one of us who are non-apostles would make such a claim. John, speaking of himself in the company of the Apostle, says, We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. What other man could say, what I teach is the bona fide truth as it is according to God. And if anybody disagrees, they're deviated. They're not the true church. Only the apostles. The teaching of the apostles is the standard because it is the inspired word of Christ. And by the way, speaking of the apostle John, I call your attention to our next point the inner circle of the twelve. He was a part of the inner circle of the twelve. Look back in Mark 3, verses 16 to 19, we are here given a list of the names of the twelve apostles. There are actually four such lists in the Bible. The Gospel of John contains none. And so the four lists are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, chapter 1. All the lists of the apostles begin with Peter and end with Judas Iscariot. Except for the one in Acts chapter 1 because Judas was already gone. All the lists follow the same basic structure. Although the names, some of the names are in a different order in those lists. And some of the lists contain alternate names for the same men. The lists always organize the names, get this, in three groups of four each. It appears that Jesus had the twelve organized according to three groups of four. And in all four lists, Peter, again, heads up the first group of names. He's always the head of the first group of four names. Philip is always the head of the second group of four names. And James, the son of Alphaeus, always heads up the third group of four names. This structure reveals something of the order of leadership among them. Although they were all co-equal in office, they were all co-equal in authority in the church, but some had more prominence among them as leaders, and Peter always consistently remains on top. In Mark's list, three names are listed first, Peter, James, and his brother John. This is known as the inner circle of the twelve. They had the closest association with Jesus out of all of the twelve. In Mark 5.37, 
When Jesus entered the house of Jairus to raise his daughter from the dead, it says, And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He just took the inner circle into the house to witness that miracle. And in Mark 9, 2, it says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. The three witnessed the transfiguration. The others did not. And then in Mark 13, 3, when they were on the Mount of Olives and Jesus had already said that not one stone would be left upon another in the temple that would not be thrown down. It was these three that asked him about it privately. And that's the word Mark uses, privately. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went off at some distance from the rest of the apostles to pray. And Mark 14.33 says, He took Peter, James, and John with him. They were the inner circle. They witnessed the resurrection of the little girl from the dead. They witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. They had the intimate ear of Christ. They witnessed the groaning, weeping, wailing agony of Christ in the garden. Later in Acts, these three were the most prominent in the leadership of the early church. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, was the first apostle to be martyred. Acts 12.2 says that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Probably beheaded. As that track says, kind of reminds me of it, Campus Crusade for Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, not so wonderful for James, at least not how we tend to think in terms of what's wonderful. But you know what? It really was. It really was wonderful because he sealed this testimony in his own blood. And that testimony testifies to the truthfulness of his witness of the bodily resurrection of Christ. The entire Christian faith hangs on the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that was the primary message of the apostles. The gospel as epitomized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If these men didn't believe in the resurrection, why would they lay down their life for a lie? Yes, there have been martyrs of false religions, but the issue with them is, is they really believe that their false religions are true. And yet these men, there is nothing prior to this in Second Temple Jewish beliefs that was expecting the Messiah to die and rise again. It's just not found in the writings. It's not a general expectation of the Jews. All the Jews were hoping and expecting in a final resurrection of all the dead, all at once, at the end of the age. But not a preliminary resurrection from the dead by the Messiah as the firstfruits and head of the new Israel. And yet these men died testifying to that. And so it's what it says that James was killed by Herod, by Herod's sword. That's not a tragedy. That's a glorious triumph. He triumphed over the lies of this world 
by sealing his testimony with his own blood. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and by not loving their lives even unto death. And that's what James did. Jesus nicknamed James and John sons of thunder. I'll get to that in a, in a moment, but speaking of these three, it's these three that Paul alluded to, if not the other James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the pillars of the Jerusalem church in Galatians 2, 9. Now, when James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, was martyred by Herod, it appears that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was also an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus, and who, by the way, apparently didn't even believe that his brother, his half-brother, was the Messiah until after he saw him raised from the dead. And then he became a believer. And then, sometime later, he became the most prominent leader of the Jerusalem church. And so it appears that James, a half-brother of Jesus, stepped into the role of James, the brother of John, after the brother of John was martyred. And then these three remained the primary pillars of the Jerusalem church. Well, John, what about John? It names him here as one of the first in the list. He went on to author his gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation, of course. And look at verse 17. It tells us that John and James were nicknamed by Jesus Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. There's a lot of speculation about what that means, but it probably refers in the first place to their boisterous temperament. They were the ones who wanted to call down fire from heaven on the villages that rejected Christ. But it probably also refers to a character quality that was in these men that upon the sanctification of the work of Christ in them was then sanctified to the will of God on account of which they would graduate from the school of Christ in order to become powerful, vocal, bold, zealous and articulate preachers who shook heaven and earth, not to mention the very gates of hell, with their preaching. Their preaching was like thunder. And in that case, oh, how desperately we, we need in the church today more sons of thunder. But first on this list, of course, is Simon, to whom Jesus gave the name Peter, verse 16. And just as God had renamed Abraham, Abraham by inserting the breath of the spirit in him that Hebrew letter for breath so he renamed Simon the new name represented his new apostolic identity his new apostolic role and mission it spoke to the mission he was appointed to do to lay down the foundation of the church upon the cornerstone of Christ as a leader among the twelve Peter means stone, which comes from the Greek. Petros in the Greek, stone. But the actual language that Jesus was speaking among the twelve was Aramaic. And in that tongue, the name that he gave him was Cephas. Cephas. 
that also means stone or rock. Now Peter in his own nature, in himself, what was Peter like? Peter was as unstable as water. He was the only apostle who denied Christ three times. He wanted to go out and walk upon the water. Command that I come out to you. If that's you, Lord, if that's really you on the water, command that I come out to you. And he, he treads out into the water and he sinks. Unstable as water. And yet, Peter was loyal. He was loyal even to a fault. The Lord would sanctify these natural qualities and give him such grace that he would become trustworthy, dependable, faithful, and as solid and unbreakable in his commitment to Christ as a rock. The church is always in need of faithful men who are dependable, who cannot be broken even in the most difficult times. And those men are few and far between. No wonder the Lord made him a leader. And so that's the inner circle, but consider now briefly in the last place, the rest of the 12, verses 18 and 19. And I won't go into detail about them because I can't. We actually know very little about most of them except for some small snippets of what the New Testament says about him. Andrew was Peter's brother, and he was apparently a leading figure among the second group of apostles. And Andrew literally means manly or courageous. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Peter and Andrew, says John 1.44. And the little bit about that we know about Philip, Philip was evangelistic, it seems. Uh, he's the one who brought Nathaniel to meet Jesus, and later he tried to bring some Greeks to meet the Lord. Other than that, we know little about him other than the fact that Philip makes some really dumb comments in the Gospel of John. Ordinary men. We already met Matthew, who was a tax collector, categorical sinner, an outcast. Simon the Canaanite, and notice the spelling of Canaanite. It's not Canaan, Canaanite. It's not speaking of a dweller in the land of Canaan. It's not speaking of a Gentile pagan, but rather Canaanite. And this comes from a Greek word which means zealot. Zealot. He was a political zealot who would team up with others to try to spark political revolutions against Rome. His main goal in life was to break off the yoke of Rome. Some of these zealots we read in first century writings, they would actually hide daggers in their cloaks and sneak up on Roman soldiers unaware and stab them in the back whenever the opportunity presented itself. That was Simon. Well, again, these are ordinary fallen men who were made extraordinary trophies of grace by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their greatness comes not from themselves, but from their closeness and proximity to Christ. There is nothing spectacular about them, but they weaken themselves. They were mighty through God to the pulling down of satanic strongholds. As someone put it, 
you can be sure that any, that any educated first century Roman citizen in looking at these 12 men would have laughed at any prediction that within three centuries the Christian faith would become the official faith of the empire as a result of their efforts. Now as far as we know, all the apostles died a premature death except for John. He was imprisoned and exiled to the Isle of Patmos, later released. He resided in Ephesus until his death. One church father says that when John was old, the brethren would carry him to the church by the four corners of his bed, and he was so weak that he couldn't even get up, so he would just lift up his head and exhort the brethren to love one another as Christ had loved them. His brother James, we saw, was killed by the sword. Peter was crucified upside down under Nero by his own request because he felt himself unworthy to be crucified right side up in the same manner as his Lord. His brother Andrew took the gospel all the way to Patras in western Greece, according to the tradition, where he was scourged and crucified by being tied to the cross rather than nailed to it. He was brutally scourged and somewhat filleted alive and then tied to a cross where he bled in agony for two days until he finally died. Bartholomew, who in the other lists goes by the name of Nathaniel, he was skinned alive and beheaded. Philip, according to one source, remember we said he's evangelistic, well, he took the gospel to Egypt where he was hung. Thomas took the gospel to India where he was speared to death. He was impaled by spears. Matthew preached down in Ethiopia in Africa where he too was impaled and then beheaded. James, the son of Alphaeus, was martyred. And there's various stories about that according to tradition. One tradition says he was sawed in pieces sought alive. Another says he was stoned and clubbed to death, and another says that he was thrown off a high wall when he was preaching, and another says, well, actually, he was thrown off a high wall when he was preaching, and then he was clubbed to death. Thaddeus, or Jude, was shot through with arrows. Simon the Zealot was crucified, possibly in Africa. And Judas Iscariot, of course, who betrayed the Lord, hanged himself and fell headlong so that his bowels gushed out in the field of blood. And Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, according to tradition, was probably stoned by cannibals in the upper Nile region of Egypt. Now we can't be sure about all these details because they come from extra-biblical sources and tradition. But church tradition is pretty clear that they were all brutally martyred. And they could all say in the end, just like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh, may the Lord grant that we could all say that. They all kept the faith solid, firm, and to the end. 
And the lesson we derive from their example, I suppose, is best summarized in the words of the poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am gone, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life had burned out for thee. The names of these faithful men will be forever written on the foundation stones of the heavenly Zion. Because when John saw the new Jerusalem in his apocalyptic vision, that holy city of the new Israel, he wrote, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so let's stand firm on this apostolic foundation, brethren, that we too may enjoy the everlasting city of God and walk one day upon those very foundations. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, give us hearts that we would love the teaching of your Spirit through these ambassadors that you sent out in your name. Grant that we would love the inspired scriptures, that we would treasure them so dearly, that we would seek to spend as much time in them every day as we can, meditating on your word day and night. Give us discernment, Lord, that we may know truth from error, and that we may walk, Lord, in the instructions of your holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen.